0: Say it's your word That comforts me By your blood We have been set free On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 as we continue uh, through the book of James. James. I'm going to read this morning verses 1 through 12. This will be our text for the next couple of weeks. So James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, if you'll follow along as I begin reading now in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. On a windswept hill in an English country churchyard stands a drab gray slate tombstone. And the faint inscription reads this way. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who, on the 24th of May, began to hold her tongue. (laughs) Well, let's hope that we learn what that woman never did, to tame the tongue. You know, as a wise sage observed, as you go through life, you're going to have many opportunities to keep your mouth shut. By all means, take advantage of all of them. (laughs) And that's true, isn't it? The tongue is a little member, but it can get us in so much trouble. It can wreak so much havoc. It can be so destructive, even deadly. And the Bible has a lot to say on the importance of controlling the tongue. Jesus said in Matthew 12:37 for by your words you will be justified in other words what you really are will be manifested by your words by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned both the psalms and proverbs have many warnings about the use of our tongues proverbs 13:3 whoever guards his mouth preserves his life he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin Proverbs eighteen twenty one, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Proverbs twenty one twenty three, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. The psalmist said in Psalm thirty four thirteen, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Proverbs or Psalm thirty nine one. The psalmist said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. In the Bible, the tongue is described as crafty, deceitful, flattering, cursing, evil, blasphemous, gossiping, slandering, insolent, mischievous, backbiting, dishonest, wicked, boasting, complaining, And so on and so on. That's not an exhaustive list. James will say this about the tongue. In verse 6, he says that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Verse 8, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 9, with it we curse people who who are made in the likeness of God. Few things in our lives do more damage than our tongues. In fact, you could say that they are our own personal weapons of mass destruction. According to a University of Arizona study, most people speak around 16,000 words a day. Now, if that's a fact, that means we have a lot of opportunities every day to detonate this personal weapon of mass destruction. I mean, our tongues are powerful instruments that can be devastating, destructive, and deadly. And that's why, as one man said, God put the tongue in a cage behind the teeth walled in by the mouth. But the Bible also speaks about the beneficial powers of the tongue. Proverbs 10.20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Proverbs 12.18, there is one whose rash words are are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 25.11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Psalm 35.28, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Psalm 37.30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Psalm 119, 172, my my tongue will sing of your word for all of your commandments are right. Paul says in Romans 10.10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. James will say with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father. Paul talks about the time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean Christians can use the tongue to pray and to proclaim the gospel, to teach the truth of God's word, to, to sing God's praise, to express thanks to God and our love and adoration for God. Our tongues can be used to encourage the downcast and, and comfort the sorrowful and the afflicted, to offer hope to the hopeless, etc., etc. But whether the tongue speaks words that are sinful and destructive or words uh, that are beneficial and helpful is determined by what is in the heart. Because the tongue only produces what it is told to produce by the heart where sin originates. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus also said in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 19, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You see, our words matter more than we could possibly imagine, because what you are will inevitably be manifested by what you say. And I remember as a boy, and I'm sure many of you do as well, going to the doctor who would pick up a wooden tongue depressor and he would say, now open up your mouth and stick out your tongue and say, ah. And apparently he was able to tell a great deal about my health by looking into my mouth and looking at my tongue. And the idea is that uh, the appearance and color and coating of, of your tongue were key indicators of your overall health. Well, that is a parable of spiritual reality. You see, what comes out of our mouths is usually an accurate indicator of the spiritual health of our hearts. I mean, your words really do reveal the true nature of your heart. That's why one Puritan preacher said, we know metals by their tinkling, and we know men by their talking. And James would agree with that statement. Because he deals with the use of the tongue no fewer than six times in this little epistle, and he does so more strongly than any other New Testament writer. In fact, he deals with our speech in some way in every single chapter. Chapter 1, verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And you'll remember that is in the context of hearing the Word of God. Verse 26 of chapter 1, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In chapter 2, verse 14, James warned about a faith which consisted of words only and wasn't backed up by a life of good works. He said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. In chapter 4, he'll warn about speaking evil, that is, slandering and defaming a brother. He'll say in in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In chapter 5, James calls for his readers to keep their speech reverent and honest. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see, James is very, very concerned about what happens when Christians open their mouths. And so in every chapter, he warns. He warns about the words coming out of their mouths. But it's here in chapter 3 that James gives the fullest discussion of the use and control of the tongue. In fact, uh, no other section of the Bible speaks with greater clarity and impact on the potential destructive power of our words. And as we come to our text this morning, keep in mind that chapter breaks are not inspired. And so it's important that we remember that James has just been explaining the difference between a dead faith and a genuine saving faith. And his point was that true saving faith will will result in and manifest itself by good works. Genuine faith in our hearts will be evident by the fruit in our lives. In other words, what we do reveals who we are. And conversely, faith without works is dead, it is non-existent, and can never save. But now, as we come to chapter 3, he seems to jump into a, a totally unrelated discussion of the tongue. But context is always important for a correct interpretation. What James has to say about the use and control of the tongue is in keeping with his theme and the central message of the book that genuine faith will manifest itself in our lives. And the point now in chapter 3 verses 1 to 12 is that a genuine living faith will be seen not only in our works but it will also be seen in the words that come from our mouths because ultimately they come from our hearts. You see, if we have been born again, we have received a changed heart. We have received a new heart. And so the words we say will reflect the reality of our new birth. Our words will manifest the fact that we are a new creation in Christ. As one commentator wrote, a transformed nature will produce transformed behavior. And new behavior involves new speech speech that corresponds to a saved and sanctified life, and that reflects the holy nature of the one who has given the new life. And so just as good works, just as what we do reveals who we are, so too our words, what we say, they reveal who we are. The genuineness of a person's faith inevitably will be revealed by his speech because, again, the tongue is the great revealer of the heart. In fact, nothing is more telling on the heart than the tongue. And of course, the tongue would be the lips, the mouth, the tongue. I mean, it's, uh, you know, what we speak with. But the tongue is also the most difficult member of the body to control. Someone said because the tongue is in a wet place, it can easily slip. That's true. And slip it does. And there's no easier way to sin than with your mouth, because you can say anything you want to say. With some other sins, there are restraints that that might keep a person from committing that sin, but with the mouth, there are no restraints. And the tongue is one of the most common ways in which believers sin. And this is a very great concern to James. In chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, we had to deal with the penetrating question, if you say you believe, then why do you behave like you do not? Well, here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, James confronts us with the question, if you say you believe, then why do you say things you should not? And as we consider the fact that what comes out of our mouths reveals what is in our heart, let me ask you a question before we actually get into our text. What does your speech say about the condition of your heart? And if that question is taken seriously, it could be a troubling question uh, for some of you and extremely troubling for others. I and mean, is there inappropriate anger in your speech? Is there cursing in your speech? Is there worldliness in your speech? Is your speech coarse or crude? Are you lewd in your speech? Is there deception in your speech? You know, do you mislead people? Do you lie? Do you waffle? Do you gossip and slander? Are you inappropriately critical? Are you condemning in your speech? Are you disrespectful? Are you demeaning and condescending? Is your speech devoid of the grace of the gospel and of the things of God, except when you're around Christian people at church? You see, James is saying that sinful speech patterns in in professing Christians needs to be taken as a serious sign of a need for grace. And he is also saying that sinful speech patterns may well be an indicator that you need the grace of God for salvation. Because speech indicates what is in your heart, it may indicate that your heart has not even been saved. And you need the grace of God for salvation. What does your speech tell you about yourself? What does your speech indicate about the true spiritual state of your heart? That's what James is going to do in most of this chapter. He's like a spiritual doctor who's saying, let me see your tongue. Because I want to to see what your heart is really like. That's his first subject in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, the tongue followed by the second subject in verses 13 to 18, which is wisdom. So he deals with the need to control the tongue and the need to exercise wisdom here in chapter 3. Now looking at our text, James begins his instruction in regard to the tongue with teachers. And that's understandable. Teaching is done primarily by means of the tongue. I mean, certainly it's done by, by the pen, by writing, but in James' day, teaching was done principally by speaking, you know, by one who spoke to a group of disciples or a class of people, and it, it, it's principally done that way as well in our own day. And so it's natural when he deals with the matter of the use and control of the tongue that he would take up the subject of teaching because teachers generally use their tongues in their work far more than any other profession, and therefore they wield incredible power. Knowing then the great responsibility of teaching and the potentially destructive nature of the tongue, James first gives a warning concerning teachers because of the weight and potential influence Of what they say. Because you see, the person with an unreliable tongue is likely to lead people astray and to be a dangerous and destructive influence on those who are taught. And let me just add this. If you're thinking to yourself right now, I'm off the hook. This is for preachers and teachers and those aspiring to be preachers and teachers. This message isn't for me, it's for them. Whew. Well, you're wrong. You're not off the hook. Because James' message is not only for teachers, preachers, and those who are aspiring to be. This message is for all of us. Because people who talk need this warning. And we all talk. And sometimes some of us talk way too much. And as Proverbs ten nineteen says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who holds back his lips has insight. In other words, I like a different translation. It says, In a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Well, let's look now at verses 1 and 2, and this is as far as we'll get today, which are really introductory. And as we look at them, we'll see in verse 1 a word of warning, and then in verse 2 a good dose of reality. So James begins chapter 3 with a warning that alarms teachers everywhere. Look at what he says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You know, there are so many things that James could have warned his readers about when it comes to the tongue, and he has much more to say about it. But the thing, but, but the thing he begins with is teaching. And I will confess And I'm being dead serious. I will confess that as someone who has taught God's Word now for 30 years, I find this very, very sobering, to put it mildly. I mean, what Bible teacher or preacher doesn't tremble a little and should when reading this strong command and the the warning that follows it? And what is even more disturbing about this is that every time a pastor-teacher gets up to teach and explains this passage, he is inviting God's judgment on himself. It's a serious issue. Deadly serious. And what is even... Well, let me put it this way. That's why... Because of the serious nature of this, that's why it is so absolutely necessary for myself and for anyone who stands in the pulpit to declare God's Word or who teaches God's Word anywhere to have asked the Holy Spirit to enable and empower us to be workers who have no need to be ashamed, rightly handling or rightly dividing the Word of Truth. As one pastor said, There is one thing that I have made a continual burden in my own heart before the Lord in prayer every time I speak. And that is, Lord, please let me say what you intended to say, and no teacher should ever say less. Never. And that's exactly right. And you'll notice in verse 1 that James reminds his readers of their relationship to God and to himself by addressing them as... My brothers. He's once again just assuring them that, that he accepts them and acknowledge them, acknowledges them as fellow members of God's family. But he says to them, Not many of you should become teachers. And the word translated here as teachers was often used of rabbis, and it refers to a person who functions in an official teaching or preaching capacity which would indicate to us that James was speaking of the official teaching office in the church. And so in this passage, he is specifically uh, speaking to those who are called to the task of teaching God's Word in an official capacity as a leader in the church. But we shouldn't restrict this to officially appointed pastor-teachers. And here's why. There is also a sense in which all of us as followers of Christ are teachers of God's Word. Think of the Great Commission, you know, where we're commanded to make disciples of all nations and to paraphrase the next verse, teaching those we disciple to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And so as we consider this, we should include not only the official office of pastor-teacher, but all who instruct other believers, whether it is in the form of discipleship, or biblical counseling, or whether it's in the church teaching Sunday school, or the youth group, or a men's or women's study, or leading a home fellowship, or whether it's a Christian educator. This applies to anyone who teaches or aspires to teach God's Word to anyone. And so this applies specifically to teaching God's Word in an official capacity and as a leader in the church, and it applies generally to any believer who seeks to teach others. And notice what James says. Notice what he warns. He says, not many of you should become teachers. And we miss the strength of what James says in the English translation. This is actually a very strong command and could be translated, stop becoming teachers or stop assuming the position of teacher, as apparently many were doing. So what's James doing here? Well, he's not trying to discourage someone from becoming a teacher. After all, James himself is a teacher, was a teacher. He was not trying to make it harder for churches to find teachers because we know how difficult it is for most churches to find enough teachers. He's not suggesting that there is need for a little teaching in the church because exactly the opposite was the case then and remains so to this day. I mean, there is a tremendous need in the church today for men who will faithfully give themselves, completely devote themselves, you know, leave it all on the field, so to speak, to study and teach the Word of God. And those whom the Lord has called and gifted to do so are under the obligation to fan into flame the gift of God which is in them, according to 2 Timothy 1.6. And so what is James' point? Well, to understand what he's dealing with, we have to understand the culture in the Jewish synagogue of that day, which apparently had carried over into the early church. The early church, and especially the predominantly Jewish congregations, which James was writing to, had come out of the worship tradition of the synagogue, which highly honored teachers. And the title, rabbi meant great one or my great one. And rabbis were were generally held in very high esteem. And they were given the the greatest of of honor, the greatest of respect. And it was even said in that day that if a man's father and his rabbi were captured by enemies and only one of them could be ransomed, the man was duty-bound to ransom the rabbi and leave his father in captivity. Now certainly there were uh, rabbis who were godly and humble men, but because of the fawning and and the flattery of their followers, many others became insufferably proud and arrogant and relishing the prestige and and the privilege. And this is what Jesus said about those self-seeking motives that characterized many of the rabbis of his day. He said this in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Commenting on Jesus' indictment, Matthew Henry says... For him that is taught in the Word to give respect to him that teaches is commendable enough in him that gives it. But for him that teaches to love it and demand it is sinful and abominable. And instead of teaching, he he has need to learn the first lesson in the school of Christ, which is humility. The problem which developed in these predominantly Jewish congregations James was writing to was that the office of teacher in the church inherited some of this exalted status of the rabbi in the synagogues, making their position you know, very enviable and desirable, but for the, all the wrong reasons. And so it's not difficult to see one of the dangers this brought about. People then began to desire the position because of the prestige, the respect, the authority that went with it. And there were some among those James was writing to who had self-seeking motives, who desired to become teachers for all the wrong reasons. And there's no question that this sort of thing happened. Because Paul warned Timothy about those desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And the problem, which can be summed up in a word, was ambition. Carnal ambition, which has been and continues to be the scourge of the church. You know, people wanting to be in the limelight. People wanting to speak in public, wanting the public attention, wanting to have position and influence and and authority. They desire the esteem of being acknowledged as teacher and and leader, but they don't want to pay the price demanded by such a position. I mean, people like this are always scrambling to places of prominence and and scheming to, to climb the ladder to be head of this ministry or that ministry. And let me tell you this. If anybody ever says, in the context of ministry in the church, talks to you about climbing the ladder or moving up in the church, one thing you know for certain, they know absolutely nothing about serving the Lord. And it's all about carnal ambition. In the church, in service in the church, you don't climb the ladder. You descend. You want to be great in God's kingdom? What did Jesus say? Learn to be the servant of all. We have people who want to, be, they want to be the leaders, they want to be the teacher, but they don't want to be servants. They want the position without putting in the time. They want the position without the sacrifice. They want it for all the wrong, wrong reasons. I mean, there is a shameful amount of striving and scheming going on in the church today. People jockeying for this position or that position, and all of it stinks of self. As one man said, if there is one thing worse than social climbing in the world, it is ecclesiastical climbing in the church. Ambition is a gilded misery, a secret poison, a hidden plague, the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of envy, the original of vices, the moth of, of holiness, the blinder of hearts, turning medicines into maladies and remedies into diseases. High seats are never but uneasy, and crowns are always stuffed with thorns. James was well aware that sinful ambitions were driving some to become teachers. And he also knew they had absolutely no idea of the seriousness of the role or of the grave responsibility of declaring God's Word. And so James issues the command, Stop! 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 Stop assuming the role of teacher. I mean, if a man assumes the role of teaching the Bible because of a secret desire for status or recognition, he is doing it for self and not for the Lord. And the fact of the matter is, no one appoints himself to the office of teacher. No one. The pastor and elders, the leadership of the church must see the calling and gifting of God on that person's life. That is one of the protections built into the church. Yet we have many today who appoint themselves teachers. We have many went ones and not sent ones. In other words, they appoint themselves teacher and then they go on their own. They're not not sent Because they weren't recognized as having that calling and gifting by the leadership. And so they go on their own. Those who appoint themselves as teachers often stumble and become stumbling blocks in what they teach. They lead the people of God astray. Some of them apostatize. Some of them teach error. As one man said, they ignorantly and carelessly interpret the Word of God in order to impress others with their knowledge and understanding, and they are a great danger to the church and are in danger themselves from God. And James says, stop becoming teachers. He is warning against people rushing into the ministry for the wrong reasons and motives. It's a warning that no one should presume to appoint themselves to the ministry, that no one should take up the task of teaching too casually, because to teach the Word of God is to invite the closest scrutiny from God. As one man said, It is to venture into an area of ministry where influence is great, temptations are strong, and sins are easily committed, and none should enter it lightly and thoughtlessly. Listen. James is not trying to discourage the person who is genuinely called and gifted by God to teach from doing so. Not at all. And James also is not promoting what one man termed an ecclesiastical elitism which limits the teaching office in the church to the super-educated and the many-lettered individual. I am not anti-intellectual or anti-education, but there are a lot of intellectual Men who are highly educated, who are nothing but apostates. They're heretics. A seminary degree does not mean that you were called to teach or preach, it doesn't even mean uh, that you're orthodox or saved. And there are many today who are in the ministry simply as a vocation, they're hirelings. You can hear it when they teach. So James is not trying to discourage the genuinely called and gifted person. He's not promoting an ecclesiastical elitism because the church in the United States is dying from a lack of good teachers in its pulpits and Sunday schools. But we need teachers with right motives, you know, willing to pay the price. And I'm so very thankful for those uh, who teach in our children's ministry, so very thankful for them. But we need men in the pulpits today with, with the right motives, willing to pay the price. Those who understand that the work of the teacher is to teach the Word of God, that the Word of God is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. I mean, the teacher's primary task is to faithfully teach, explain, and apply the Word of God, he's not there to share his own speculations, nor is he there to teach his own ideas and opinions. My opinion doesn't matter, neither does yours. What matters is, what does it say? Because it means exactly what it says. It's not, what does it mean to me? It doesn't matter what it means to me. It doesn't matter what it means to you. Again, what matters is, what does it say? And how can that be applied in our lives? So the teacher's primary task is to faithfully teach, explain, and apply the Word of God, not share his own speculations or ideas and opinions. But even so, the teacher has to use his own words to convey the great truths contained in Scripture. And when God's Word is faithfully preached, the Holy Spirit breathes life into it, and it goes forth in power and authority, challenging and convicting men and women of its saving truths and and laying bare the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so by all means, those whom God has called and gifted should take up the work But they must make sure they're doing it for the right reasons, with the right motives, fully prepared to pay the great cost which it involves if you're going to faithfully declare the truth of God's Word. It's costly. It costs you. It costs you in time. It costs friendships. It costs your family. In time, they give up, so you're you're able to adequately prepare. One man said of preaching what could also be easily said of teaching. He said, there is no special honor in preaching. There is only special pain. The pulpit calls those anointed to it as the sea calls its sailors, and like the sea, it batters and bruises and does not rest to preach to really preach he said is to die naked a little at a time and to know each time you do it that you must do it again we're not to teach and preach to satisfy our own egos or because we uh, we have a very high opinion of ourselves and a very high opinion of our uh, of our own opinion we're not there to satisfy our egos but to bring glory to God and to deliver His word accurately for the building up of the body of Christ and for the eternal benefit of those who hear us. And now, in the rest of verse 1, James gives the reason for his warning the reason not to assume the position of a spiritual teacher. Look back at the verse. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Those who teach will be judged with greater strictness, literally greater judgment we will receive. You want to teach and preach, know that you're going to be held to a higher standard. And James has already touched on this subject of judgment back in chapter 2 when he said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I mean, unbelievers will stand before God and face His final judgment at what is called the great white throne, described in Revelation 20. But as we discussed in chapter 2, there's also a judgment, a time of reckoning for believers. I mean, Paul said in Romans 14.10, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul was a little more specific about this judgment. He said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I mean, believers will not be judged for sin at the judgment seat of Christ because every sin the believer has was judged at the cross. The purpose for this judgment is for recognizing and rewarding some achievement, namely those things that were of true eternal value, Deeds with motives that please and glorify the Lord. And the true assessment of the work God has done in and through believers will be revealed on that day, when each one discovers the real verdict on his or her works, service, and motives. And James now returns to this subject of judgment, but with specific reference to those who teach the Scriptures. These people, he says, are going to be judged With greater strictness, with a greater judgment. And why do teachers incur greater judgment? Well, because the answer is, if we claim to have a more full knowledge of God's Word for His people, and also claim that we are called and gifted to deliver it, then we are responsible to deliver it accurately, clearly, and we're also responsible to obey it, to live it. Teachers are expected to live the truth, not just teach it. I mean, we're to practice what we teach or preach. And so teachers are held to a higher standard. And so by virtue of a pastor teacher, you know, by by virtue of a pastor teacher's calling and study of God's Word and his knowledge of God's Word, which is more than many Christians, he is going to undergo a stricter judgment. Because greater authority and responsibility also brings with it greater accountability. And the reason for this greater accountability lies in the greater influence the teacher has. It's one thing to sin with your tongue in private or in front of one or two people. It's another thing altogether to stand in front of God's people and sin with your tongue. So the reason for the greater accountability lies in the greater influence the teacher has. And following the parable of the foolish manager, Jesus said this, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so every one of us, no exceptions, will stand before the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where our works will be judged. Our works and our motives. But while all Christians will be at the Bema seat, professed teachers of the church will undergo, again, a greater judgment. Their teaching is going to be examined with far greater scrutiny. And so the pastor who goofs around all week and is careless in his sermon preparation Waits till Saturday night as he's watching TV and then gets up on Sunday morning and delivers a short little, you know, topical sermonette for Christianettes, which has most of the time nothing to do with the text whatsoever and is most of the time unsound, is going to have his work torched. Preachers who have such little regard for their task if they don't adequately repair prepare or they don't use the, the time set apart for the teaching of the Word of God uh, except to, do, uh, to discuss trivial things. You know, preachers who joke about things that are sacred and those who set aside the clear teaching of the Bible so that he or she can be in line with current thinking and the latest cultural fads. Preachers who are flippant and careless and who act as if they're entertainers who are out to get a laugh. I mean, those who misuse their tongues to misrepresent and distort the Word of God had better listen up and understand that we are being held to a higher standard. And you wonder have these people never read James chapter 1, verse, or James chapter 3, verse 1? Do they not understand that they're going to be held to a higher standard? Well, with all the nonsense that goes on today in churches, in the pulpits, I don't think they have. Either that or they don't believe it. Apparently, they didn't read James chapter 3 verse 1 when they took the job. But they're going to be held to a higher standard. And we had better know and understand this well. God takes the teaching of His Word seriously, and so should we. So should we. And if we doubt that God takes the matter seriously, we need only read what John says about adding to or taking away from God's Word. Or Peter and Jude's severe warnings against heretical teachers. Or Paul's words in 1 Corinthians three ten to 15 and there he tells us that teachers can build with gold, silver, and precious stones, or with wood, hay, and straw. And the coming day of judgment will reveal the kind of work that we've done, and those who have built with wood, hay, and straw are going to see their work utterly consumed. And they'll realize then that they've accomplished absolutely nothing, nothing of eternal value anyway. One man said the test of all ministry must come in the last day of trial and fiery inquisition of God. This and not the world's opinion will be the real approval. If we teach because of the desire to show off without living Christ before we preach Him, the judgment of God will be a severe condemnation. But if our teaching is motivated by a sincere and honest love for the Lord and the edification of those who hear us, then we can welcome this judgment for it will mean a great reward. Poor teachers, I mean those who have assumed the position of teacher who weren't called and gifted by God, I mean poor teachers, they do much harm, much harm. I mean those who misrepresent God's Word can and do more spiritual and moral damage to God's people, as one man said, than a hundred atheists or secularists attacking from the outside. And Paul warned the Ephesian elders, you know, that from among themselves, men would rise up, you know, drawing disciples after themselves, men assuming the position of teacher because of ambition. Poor teachers do great harm to the body of Christ, but on the other hand, who can calculate the good that has been achieved by those teachers who have served faithfully and diligently? In eternity itself will finally reveal the value of such teachers. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You'll notice, James says, We You know, he includes himself as one who is a teacher. So he issues a strong warning uh, to anyone aspiring to be a teacher and to those who who teach at any level that we have a tremendous accountability to God. And now in verse 2, James gives us a dose of reality. You know, just in case there's someone who thinks that they can get around this, notice what he says in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James' statement that we stumble in, in, in many ways reinforces the truth that no one, absolutely no one is exempt in regard to the dangers of the tongue and other forms of sin against God. The Greek word translated here as we all literally means each and every one of us without exception. And the Greek word translated stumble refers to any moral lapse or, or failure to do what is right. You know, it speaks of an offense against God. It means to sin. But according to one, uh, one commentator, this word doesn't imply a fatal fall, but, but something that trips us up and, and hinders our spiritual progress. And, and I believe that's exactly right. And the present tense indicates repeated stumbling. And so James is saying we all sin many times in many ways. And just in case you don't think so, Second Chronicles 6.36 says there is no one who does not sin. Now you can't put it more clearly than that. And James, uh, John says if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. You're calling God a liar. For there is no one who does not sin. There is no man who does not sin. We all sin. And we all sin in many ways. And you'll notice James does not write as one who has arrived. I mean he's very conscious of his own sin and shortcomings. He said, For we includes himself, for we all stumble in many ways. And he included himself among those who stumble. So there's no faults. Uh, spirituality. No false perfectionism here. James knows he sins, and perhaps he remembers, among other things, how he misspoke about Jesus, demeaning him during the days of his earthly ministry. I mean, was James one of the family members who said of Jesus, "He's out of his mind"? There in Luke th- or Mark three twenty one. You know, was this the reason why our Lord appeared to him privately as he did Simon Peter after the resurrection? Whatever the case may be. Not only does James identify himself completely with the teaching he's giving, but he warns us that none of us will be excused from judgment because none of us is exempt from sin. James says we all sin in many ways. And understand, loved ones, that's the statement not only of a mature Christian, but of one of the greatest Christian leaders in the early church who was universally acknowledged to be one of the most diligent in the practice of the spiritual disciplines and in in holiness and in separation from the world. And yet James does not say, you all stumble, but we all stumble in many ways. And James' words here are applicable far beyond those who are called to teach. I mean, we all use our tongues, and James wants us to know we all sin and many we all sin many times and in many ways. And no right-minded Christian can possibly argue with that. And one of the many ways we sin, and perhaps the most frequent way we sin, is with our tongues. Some of the greatest saints have had trouble with the tongue. Job was a very great man of God whom God himself called blameless and upright. But Job had trouble controlling his tongue as revealed in the final chapter of the book. Job said in chapter 40 verse 4, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Isaiah was a prophet of God, but he confessed, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And then we read, Then one of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And Isaiah says, He touched my mouth. So obviously, he had sinned with his mouth. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Moses is one of the greatest men of God in all of Scripture. We're told he was the humblest man on the face of the earth. And yet we read in Psalm 106.33 that he spoke rashly with his lips. He sinned with his mouth. He sinned with his words. And we're all very much, much aware of Peter, you know, how he was constantly putting his foot in his mouth, right? That's why we love him so much. I mean, he declared to Jesus, even if everyone fell on account of him, that he would never fall. But later that very night, those same lips tragically denied Christ and not only denied him, but denied him with cursing. Even Paul, the greatest apostle and and author of so much of the New Testament, couldn't always control his tongue. He lost it one time with the high priest Ananias and said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And literally, it is God is going to damn you, you whitewashed wall. And so if we're honest, all of us must admit it is extremely difficult not to sin with the tongue. And don't forget about the thoughts and motives that form the words on our tongue. It's extremely difficult not to sin with the tongue. I mean, it's so natural to just say whatever we want. In fact, in, in, this, in this culture, that's, um, that's almost seen as a virtue. You know, to express your feelings as if we all need to know your feelings all the time. I mean, it's so natural to gossip and to criticize and to slander and to lie and, and to defame and to deceive. Offending people and, and, more importantly, sinning against the Lord. You know, it just, these things just roll right off the lips. So we can sympathize with the songwriter who confessed, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. May nowhere are we more apt to sin than in our speech and we sin with the tongue so easily. That's why James says in the rest of verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now when James says he is a perfect man, does he mean perfect in the sense of a spiritually mature man? Is that what he means? And that's the way he used the word translated here, perfect, back in chapter 1, verse 4, when he said, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There in verse 4, the word perfect refers to that which is fully developed, you know, that which is mature, referring to spiritual maturity fulfilled in Christ's likeness. And so, as the question then would be, is James using that word perfect? Uh, in the same way here. Is he saying that the spiritually mature person does not stumble in what he says and therefore he is also able to bridle or control his whole tongue? Is that what he's saying? I mean, certainly the spiritually mature person should have more control over his tongue than a new believer. But I don't believe that's what James is saying. Why? Why? because James was certainly a spiritually mature man he was a spiritually mature leader one of a uh, believer one of the greatest leaders in the in the new in the early church and he just said he stumbled in many ways job isaiah moses peter and paul were all spiritually mature men a blameless man a prophet leader of god's people you know two uh, two apostles All spiritually mature men, and none of them were able not to stumble in what they said. Therefore, they would also be unable to bridle or control the whole body. No one has ever perfectly tamed his whole body, which is the easier job, far less controlled his tongue, which is by far the much more difficult task. So what does James mean here? What does this mean? Well, this word translated perfect has two meanings. One, as I just mentioned, means mature. But the second meaning carries the idea of absolute perfection, of being without any flaw or error. And I believe this is what uh, James means here in verse 2. Why? Two reasons. Number one, in saying this, uh, not only is there a little sarcasm, But James, more importantly, is pointing us to the only human who was completely sinless in speech on this earth, Jesus Christ, who was without sin or fault in every other area of temptation as well. I mean, Jesus was perfect in His speech, absolutely without sin. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. There was no sin in Jesus' life and no sin in His mouth. He was without sin in word, thought, deed, and motive. See, what James is doing here is confessing that nobody, that nobody except Jesus has succeeded in not stumbling in what he says. In other words, no one except Jesus has ever perfectly controlled his tongue. And secondly, James is telling us that our inability uh, to tame our tongues is the ever-present reminder of the power of indwelling sin, Our helplessness to cure ourselves and our constant and continual need of God's grace to cleanse us and to enable us to persevere in faithfulness to Him. You see, our need is is made painfully obvious by the lack of control of our tongues and the sinfulness of our speech. And this points us to our need of Christ. And our need of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives to enable us to live the life that we're called to live. To enable us to walk in the Spirit and to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. To enable us to let our speech always be seasoned with grace. So Dr. James is saying, let me see your tongue. because it's an accurate indicator of the spiritual health of your heart. And James' spiritual diagnosis is this. Not many of you should become teachers. Because those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all, you know, every one of us stumble many times and in many ways. We all find it easy to offend with our tongue. But anyone who has managed to control his tongue completely, perfectly, is is, is a perfect man able to control his whole body perfectly as well. However, no one except Christ has ever done that. And so our only hope as we pursue the taming of our tongues is that we are Christ's. We belong to Him. And we are being made increasingly like Him. But this battle for holiness in our lives, and here specifically in our speech, is a long-running one. And it needs to be fought constantly, doesn't it? Constantly, daily, hourly, moment by moment. Moment by moment. And we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon Christ and upon the indwelling Spirit to live this life He's called us to live. And if someone thinks they can do this on their own, they have not understood the first thing about being a believer. So all I can say in conclusion is thank the Lord Jesus Thank the Lord Jesus that He lived the perfect sinless life with perfect sinless speech, the life that that we could never live. And then He died the death of sinners, the death that you and I deserve for our sin. And when by grace, through faith, we repent of our sin and put our trust in Him alone for salvation, our sin is placed on Christ's account and marked paid in full. But that's only half of the equation. Secondly, The perfect righteousness of Christ is in, credited to us. So that the Father now sees us as perfectly righteous in Christ. I mean, think of it. He sees us this morning as perfectly righteous in Christ, even in our speech. And we praise Him for that glorious truth this morning, don't we? I mean, what good news it is that Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins, even our sins of speech And the wonderful thing is that God the Father welcomes even our tongues into eternity because of the sinless speech of His dear Son. You know, God chose to regenerate us by implanting His saving word inside of us. And now He's calling us both to act and to speak as His holy people. loved ones, a genuine faith will manifest itself in good works, and it will also manifest itself in our words, and may it be so in our lives for the glory of God. Amen. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530 547 4400. That's 530 547 4400. Or write to us at PO Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening.